I'm Lauren. I'm Tia. And this is the Journey to Transformation. Welcome. Welcome, welcome. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing very well. What have you been up to? Um, what have I been up to? Oh shit. We have something to tell the people. We do. We are running in the London Marathon. Oh, <laughs> we will be sharing just giving and fundraising pages. Yeah, we will. So look out for some fun fundraising events and podcast related events over the next year or so. Yeah. And if you haven't checked out our website, we've got some merch. So we've got some fancy, lovely t-shirts. We've got sweaters. We've got hoodies. We've got mugs. And a portion of all the sales of our merch are going to go to our charities that we are raising money for. And if you are around the Vauxhall area, I'll also be around around selling some famous granola. And I must say this granola is just absolutely fantastic. I could live off it. I have tried many kinds of granola over the years and there's just something about this. It's just so good. I'm addicted to it. Yeah. Literally, I could handfuls of it, eat it every day. It's the Xanax I sprinkle into oh, it. Oh, get out. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm always like, have some more granola. <laughs> yeah. Literally, Tia has to keep topping me up daily. Daily yeah. granola top up. I should start charging you for it. Yeah, I'd, probably. I'd make my fundraising goal in a heartbeat. Indeed. Super. Well, that's exciting. And I just wanted to say that I'm really proud of you. Of me. Yes, I am. Because <laughs> this, because I, I appreciated that at the time I kind of threw the marathon run in your face because I was on my own runner's high from having done the Tough Mudder. <laughs> um, so I was in my own zone and threw it at you and you picked it up and you ran with it. <laughs> and I think also like running for a cause that I care about is very motivational. Yeah. So, you know, good. I'll be there with everyone running along. We've got some letters. Letters? <laughs> People send us pigeons. <laughs> this week we received an email from someone in Switzerland Ooh. who wrote, despite your episode, I'm still finding it hard to distinguish between conflict sensitivity and the do no harm concept. Are you able to shed more light on these differences? Oh gosh, this is one of your people. <laughs> what do you mean? One of your humanitarian nerds. But I think... It's a, it's a good question. Sure. If you're going to be conflict sensitive, you're essentially wanting to do no harm. But conflict sensitivity as a concept in in itself is comprised of many components of which do no harm is one. So it's like a a subset of conflict sensitivity. Yeah, I think that's fair. Conflict sensitivity also perhaps more in the name focused on the conflict elements. Whereas if you're going to do no harm, that could be across any space part of your project, right? And in general practice, as Tia often says, you just shouldn't be a dick. So, you know. Genius. Truer words have never been spoken. But we can put some more resources in our show notes for you to help with that distinction. And we have one more. We've got time for one more email. Um, So we've got a regular listener from Australia who said, I'm an avid fan of your podcast and that you do it from a van. Just wondering when we can see more pictures of the van. And also, do you guys ever argue in the van? We argue wherever we can. (laughs) (laughs) The van is not not the uh, variable here that matters. (laughs) Yeah, I would say, yeah, wherever we can argue, we definitely try to argue. (laughs) It does feel like, uh, okay, in terms of when you're going to see the van next, we have something really cool that we're rolling out, which is virtual reality podcast. So you are going to be able to see the van, check out our YouTube page, and you're going to see us in virtual reality as if you're sitting next to us. You're going to enjoy it. It's going to be cool. 
<laughs> and very, very cool for you to kind of sit with us in the van as we're talking. That's so cool. Yeah. I don't think I've seen anything like that in the podcast circuit. So, well, you know, we are TM, 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 <laughs> jokes, jokes. So exciting. I think anytime you're in an enclosed space, you're always going to get conflict. Yeah, I mean, me and Tia are, no, wait, I'll take that back. Tia is very opinionated. <laughs> Jokes. Are you not opinionated? <laughs> no, that's why I'm joking. <laughs> me and Tia have a lot to say, a lot of opinions, and I think it's healthy that they're different. It's good to challenge each other, and we're learning a lot about how that should and shouldn't be done on our journey as podcast hosts. So today we're talking about data disaggregation. And what we mean by that is whenever we collect any data, and particularly in our field, we're talking about separating that data into smaller subsets. But I guess like the question is like, yeah, but why? Why do we do this? Why do we disaggregate our data? So for example, you might collect a lot of information on a population in the UK. To disaggregate that data would be to look at age, gender, all sorts of different characteristics within that data and just divide it into those subsets so you can understand more in relation to whatever research you're, you're looking at or what are the reasons why you've collected that data. A bit like peeling back the layers of an onion. Is it? <laughs> Maybe another example is like if you're looking at literacy rates for a general population, you might want to be like, well, what does this low literacy rate, is it girls or boys or other gender groups, for example, you mm. may want to understand if it's affecting a certain group of people more than another. And to do that, you need to break down that data. Disaggregating data is simply you're, what you're describing are like people, but you can disaggregate data, any kind of data for anything, right? I can do it with the number of books on your bookshelf right now. Mm -hmm. I can separate them by color of spine. I can separate them by author. I can separate them by whatever. So the idea is about creating these clusters is what were you calling it before? Subsets. subsets. About creating these subsets to give you a better understanding of the total picture in some ways. I guess for me, the question is like in the space that we work in, we collect too much data, I would mm. say on the whole. Yeah. We, we collect data that we don't use. And the problem for me is that we collect data on people and it requires me to tell you something about myself. And if you don't use that, that's shitty. And I think we've discovered a lot in some of our projects that people do collect data on gender, age, sex, all these characteristics, but there is no clear cut idea of how to use it or why they're even collecting it. So as you, as you say, then it ends up with like lots of information about, you know, people's gender identity in a particular community, but to what end? It just sits on someone's Excel sheet or laptop and that's it. And then that brings back the question of like, well, why did you collect it in the first place then? And who is actively asking those questions? Because there has often been, and we've talked about this drive towards gender in the sector, understanding people's genders, identity, sex identity, understanding whether people are a vulnerable group or not. And so it's almost like in some ways that we've pushed ourselves to disaggregate this data and, and there's been a general drive, but then there is no purposeful meaning behind it. Okay, so we all need to be doing this now, but to what end? I think it's a really good question. This is building off a piece of research that we just did that you led on, which was basically around feminist data collection, storage and management. And what does a feminist approach to this look like? And I think fundamentally we need, if you're going to take it, you got to use it. Otherwise you're just taken from people. 
people, right? You're taking stories, you're taking the time. They could be doing a bunch of other stuff with that time. Like it's not cool. Mm. And don't you think it takes quite a brave person now though, to be like, oh, we're not collecting information on people's gender or sex or disability. That feels like quite a brave thing to say right now. My point I guess is not that you take a position on it, right? Like Mm -hmm. you adopt lean research methods. So you only take what you need. You and I were describing some stuff in the mine action sector. And I was saying, well, what would be the utility of gathering information on a person's gender in this context? Why does it matter? If you're clearing landmines from my backyard, why does my gender matter to that action that you're taking? And if you can't answer that question, then don't collect that data. Gender matters, but does my age matter? Does my level of education matter? I think if you cannot say, this is how I'm going to use this information, then you shouldn't take it because it is taking. And in some cases it's assuming because what we saw in that research was a fair amount of conflation between sex and gender. I've seen this not just in the mine action sector. This is not isolated to the report that we did. I see it constantly. What's the difference between sex and gender? You're asking me? Yes. Sex is the biological attribute and gender is a social construct, at least in my knowledge of it. When you say it, it sounds like it. So sex is like male and female. uh, And gender like man and woman or other gender identities. And even sex, though, there are other outside of the X and Y. Yes. So, yeah. So there's- Apologies, everyone, for my binary assumption there. <laughs> well, you corrected it, so I think it's fine. Um, but I think that's kind of the point, right? Is that like people will, one, confuse the two. So we'll see gender disaggregated data and it will be M or F, male or female. Or we'll see sex disaggregated data and it will be man woman, boy, girl. So one, it's existing in a binary. Two, it's confusing the two things. It does matter. Yeah, well, it does matter because then how do you bring that data together? You know, if people are interpreting it in different ways, it doesn't necessarily give you good quality data and you can't make assumptions around all of it, really. And I think then what also comes into play there is whoever you're interviewing, what is their interpretation of gender and sex and how is that different from yours? Also, we've discovered that there are sensitivities around it, right? Like in in, in asking for someone's sex or or gender generally. So in some countries, even asking is sensitive. That's a whole nother dimension as well. I guess I just don't understand necessarily why we need to be asking people these questions versus like asking them to point at something, for example, like a picture. There are alternative ways. I feel like there's alternative ways to allow people to self-identify and it doesn't need to be as what can feel invasive, particularly for some communities. So for minoritized gender communities, it might feel a bit like, don't make assumptions, let me tell you what it is to avoid misgendering somebody. But in some of the places that we work, you must assume a person's gender because if you said, what gender are you? They might get pretty fucking pissed. So many, I think like additional dimensions to, you know, when and how and why you disaggregate data. And I think it's not as simple as saying, let's just do it. There's lots of things to consider here. And I have just seen so many log frames saying that this needs to be disaggregated by what and just sitting in a log frame and and that being it really. I think the thing that is happening just in this, the back of that conversation was that we were focusing a lot on gender, but it could be things like marital status. Mm -hmm. Could be things like health related things. Yeah. There's a number of different things that you might be asking somebody that they might not want to talk to you about. And I'm sure you'd have to have some sort of protocol in place for how you deal with that. But I come back to that fundamental point of 
just don't take what you're not going to use. We are drowning in an excess of information that isn't used and isn't compared in any meaningful way. So I've seen some, we've seen some data sets, some massive fucking data sets. There's a whole load of information that doesn't get pulled into anything or any type of analysis. So what's it for? General data protection regulations are really great for establishing this foundation of like, you need to be really, really fucking clear on why you're taking somebody's information and you need to be clear with them why you're taking it, what you're doing with it and how it's being used. So I think is that those general principles, which, you know, GDPR is a good uh, kind of regulatory system for us to think about that. It doesn't apply in all countries, though, to be fair. But again, as I said, like lean research methods are that. Don't just adopt a, an Excel spreadsheet because somebody gave it to you. Actively, critically engage with all of the fucking columns in that thing and ask yourself if you need it and what you're going to do with it. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's also just, um, you know, we talk about this quite often where so many organizations might collect the same data in the same space. And do you really need to all be collecting demographic information? Surely one set of demographic information is enough for everybody to to use if necessary. Sure. And, you know, maybe that's where like, you know, national statistic offices are meant to come in as a state delivery service census, for example. And in some cases, I, I wonder how the non-governmental organizations data feeds into national census sometimes because it might be that they're present there, but the state isn't for whatever reason. I don't know how they're connected, but yeah. That's an interesting question. And sometimes I think census is. Sensei? <laughs> Since I, is that for real? I don't know. They're, they're out of date or they were done like, you know, in 2010 or whatever and, and things have changed. So anyway, anything else on disaggregated data? I guess the thing for me is yeah, just that active reflection on why you're doing it. I don't think there can be a one size fits all scenario. You're going to need different information depending on what you're doing with it. But where that information already exists, use that, which we've always said collabos, get some collaborations going, but also just don't take what you're not going to use because it's not good for anyone. It doesn't help your enumerators or whoever it is you've got to collect the data because they're asking more questions than they need to. It's not helping anybody in the community. Like There's so many times when people have like sent me surveys or asked me to fill things out. And I thought, why is this relevant to what it is you're trying to achieve here? Or like, how does this piece of information help you to understand anything about what's going on and the degree of detail? So when I was at Plan International, I was leading one of the projects around the International Aid Transparency Initiative. So this was the concept of us figuring out how open and transparent we can be about what pieces of data we had, what we were collecting. And it was part of a whole initiative as well about like being able to track every pound that was spent of overseas development aid. And the question we had was, how deep do you go? Do we need to go down to commune level? Do we need to go down to province level? What? Why would we need this information? What's the utility of that? And does this mean that you put people at risk? Does it mean that if I say woman in X profession in this commune with this da 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 da, da in this proximity to what? Am I creating identifiable information? What does that mean? Also, why are we collecting everybody's phone numbers? Somebody sent me a data set a month ago and it had like all these people's phone numbers in it. And I was like, no, thank you. And I sent it straight back to them and deleted it off of everything. No, like, thank you. Like, wh why, why do you need this information? If you're, mm. if you're not planning on going back, even if you are planning on going back, you can't really keep that data. And like, this is a data protection thing now, right? Like you can't really keep that. Like the fact that this data set even existed, I was a bit like, mm. yeah, I want no part of this. 
That's scary. The sharing of data in that way is very scary. Yeah. I mean, maybe the question is how can you use disaggregated data in a productive way? Yeah. How can you? Are you asking me? Yeah. Only take what you need. <laughs> but I mean, like, how do, how do you use it though? Like, so for example, maybe one way could be you use it to tell you who's missing or like who's excluded, although you have to know then who's excluded. I suppose like, for example, you could find out that maybe the people you're working with, like 80% of them are identify as men. And so you might be like, oh, is that where are the women or where are other genders, for example? I think it starts in the same place that everything starts. What is the question you're trying to answer. So mm -hmm. if the question is, I want to understand who's missing from whatever, then that would inform who's missing from what perspective, right? Is it age groups? Then who gives a shit about this other stuff you're collecting? You just collect it on age categories. Right. Is it about different types of employment or different sectors of employment? Is it about health? If it's about health, then perhaps some of these other things may be more relevant than others. Like, I think the first point is like, what is the question you're trying to answer and what data do you need to answer that question in a robust and lean way? But I think also then being prepared to find out something that you can't respond to. And therefore being willing to share that data with somebody who can respond to it. Oh, I think you've gone off piste in the... Oh, uh, sorry. Have you, I? You've gone off the disaggregated data world. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I have a little bit. Yeah. But let's <laughs> say that you did find out you disaggregate your data and you found out something from your disaggregated data, then you have to be willing to share that information. But that's also sharing personal information with another organization or with a government authority or whatever. So there is engaged consent would say no. Right. So there's a real like also tension there, I think. Yeah. I think, you know, we are talking about sharing information with other organizations. Yeah. It depends, I think, on a lot of things in terms of whether or not you can share that information, because if it's shit like people's fucking phone numbers, then no, you can't. But right. Like, exactly. You have to get people's permission for that before you do it. Okay, great. So yeah. what's, what's your concluding line on disaggregating data? I don't know how I can say it anymore. Only take what you need. That's it. Um, at, at the start of it, here's the question I want to ask. Here is how I'm going to answer it and the sources of information that I need to answer it sufficiently. Because I can imagine a lot of scenarios where it might be really, really important. Like if you talk about literacy rates, it might be really important to understand how people might identify, to understand who might be disproportionately experiencing an educational system or something. Yeah. And I do sort of wonder a little bit if the sustainable development goals is driving it a bit too, in terms of like, you've got these umbrella goals that there are are 17 goals that the United Nations put together back in 2000 and 2015. Anyway, the sustainable development goals are a set of like indicators, goals around health, gender. Some might say goals. And then underneath them, there are like indicators that need to be measured. And so there's a national level of measurement that needs to happen, which to a large extent does require that disaggregation of data. And I wonder if there's like a general drive there too, but it's more about tracking progress rather than using it. I imagine. Yeah. I think what happened is we all got into this habit of collecting data and we just are doing it as an automatic response. Yeah. And I don't think we're asking ourselves why. I hate to keep reinforcing that point, but I do think it's really important to just okay. ask yourself why you're collecting that information. Because if it's feeding into some national grid of data, which it's not, then like... Cool. That's useful. But is it actually, is there a little like SDG ticker 
that every time you stick your information into Excel, it clicks it up one. What is it being fed into? Because more data is being collected than is actually being aggregated into our understanding of where we are in terms of the SDGs. Yeah. What's the difference between disaggregated and aggregated? Disaggregate are component parts. So I take a thing and I understand it's subsets. It's little bits of it. Aggregated, I pull it all together and I pool it. Okay. Thanks. Helpful. Okay. So two takeaways then. Take only what you can use and be ask why. No, no, no. Take what you need. <laughs> you can use all of it. You can probably use Take all only of it. what you need and ask why you need it. <laughs> exactly. Okay. I'd say. Great. Adopt lean research methods. It's going to be cheaper, more agile. Everybody prefers it. And given that we're always bothering the same fucking communities for the same old bullshit that gives nothing to their lives, that contributes nothing to their immediate experience of the world around them. Fucking stop it. There we go. What you need and make sure you fucking need it. And if you don't, stop it. Mic drop. Not these. These were expensive. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. I think that's a great summary on data disaggregation. And we'll put some resources in the show notes. I don't think it was that good because we actually started talking about data collection. Oh, uh, well, you know, data in general. Okay. So we've got another new segment called Lessons. Lessons, lessons, lessons. Da, 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 da. Insert some sort of sound there. La, 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 lessons. Okay, so I've got two lessons. Cool. And so we decided that every episode we're going to share some lessons that we have learned this week. And the first lesson, shall I share or should you? You go. Okay. So the first lesson I learned this week was that some people are just so good at being aware of what people know and don't know in a situation. So I sometimes play netball for random teams during the week that I don't know. And so I went to play netball for a random team. They were really cool, really easy to hang out with. And we went to the pub afterwards and they all were just so good at filling me in on their lives and realizing that I had no idea about them at all. And so like they were just very aware of that. And they were just like, oh yeah, so, you know, this person and this person are together and this happened, blah, blah, blah. And then someone would start a new conversation about something and they'd be like, oh, hang on, blah, 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 blah. Like this person moved into this house and this happened. And I just had a massive appreciation for it because I've often found myself in situations and we We've talked about this in the sector before, in our podcast before, where you join a group of people and you just feel like an alien because they're talking in a language or in a way that you just have absolutely no idea what's going on. So I learned this week and had a massive appreciation for this group of people and the way that they were with me as a stranger and an outsider. So I've learned to try and be more aware of that. And be aware of what people know and what they don't know, you know, when we're in a group setting. So yeah, that's a great lesson. Hmm. I felt like I belonged, even though I didn't know them. <laughs> I've learned that I would hate that. <laughs> okay. I don't know you. I don't need to know about your dog. <laughs> I, I only came for the netball. I'm less shy than I used to be, but I used to be really shy. So in those situations where people like I couldn't speak up and people wouldn't necessarily include me, I have a massive appreciation for that. It's a bit of a throwback to the episode that we did on jargon though, isn't it? Yes, right. It's like, if you don't know what's going on, you create this in-group, out-group dynamic. Yeah. And people feel alienated because they don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. It's not dissimilar to a project that we're working on at the moment. They use a lot of acronyms and we have no clue what they're talking about. Exactly. And that's kind of like why I thought of it too. So yeah, anyway, that's one of my lessons this week. Okay. Do you want to do one or should I do my second one? No, go ahead. Do your second one. Okay. The second lesson I learned this week was, and I'll tell the story first. So 
I was at my flat looking out of these big windows that I have onto the park and the park's there. It's just a nice little park between a bunch of flats, apartments. And I saw all these people in blue t-shirts, like they all had the same blue t-shirt walking down the road. And some of them had like wheelbarrows and like brooms and shovels and all sorts of like gardening kit. And and I looked closer and they all had like city bank on the t-shirt. And then on the back, it said community day. And so they were all going to the park to like start doing work, digging, planting flowers. It was like they had like bushes and stuff in their wheelbarrows. And there was loads of them. <laughs> and they were there also like with buckets of water going to the hose all around my flat so I learned this week what it's like to be a beneficiary (laughs) 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 where I benefited from some people some doing community work (laughs) doing flowers and park work I genuinely felt like a beneficiary they didn't ask me whether I wanted that or not (laughs) they just came digging around in the uh park did I say I needed this (laughs) who decided Um, who decided? And also, why did they choose Citibank? I bet Citibank chose them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were like, we're a bunch of dickwads and we need to atone. They were like, this small community in South London really needs some help. <laughs> it was probably community service as part of their plea arrangements. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh dear. You're going to get Goldman Sachs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyone else who wants to come down and do the park work. But come on, do a survey first. Come on, needs assessment. What, Classic. What would you have said your need was if yeah, they had come right. back to us? I'd have been like, look, I need a pool. <laughs> we need a community pool that is looked okay. after like every week. Okay. I would have liked a little cafe there. Like a nice little cafe with like a sitting outside area, like a coffee hut or something. I'd have asked for that. Okay. These feel like l- much uh, longer term maintenance <laughs> activities. <laughs> I mean, I didn't see them coming in with a, a shed or anything or, okay. you know. Well, they're going to come by in a couple of weeks with uh, some clipboards. Yeah. Like, Do you like the park? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're Tell gonna us how much you use it. <laughs> Post survey, not a pre-survey. There we are. So that's what I learned this week. What it means to be a beneficiary where people don't ask you what your needs are. <laughs> so now you definitely know what it's like. <laughs> I mean, cringe. I will obviously never know what it's like for a bunch of white people to come in and start digging up your land. But there we go. So, what is your lesson? I learned that in the work that we do, I think it's really common to suffer in silence. Obviously, not us because we have a podcast where we fucking complain about this shit all the time. But the more I talk to other consultants and the more we get people working on projects with us, the more I realize that we're doing a really good thing, if I don't say so myself. <laughs> we treat people well, we pay people fairly. The model that we adopt is everybody gets paid the same because everybody's bringing something unique. Even if you've got a different level of education and a different level of experience, you're bringing something unique to this space that doesn't exist there and that needs to be recognized and rewarded. We've had some problems with projects that we've had to jump out of and say no to, and we've paid people their contracts regardless. And like getting feedback, I realize that this space, not everybody's doing things the same way and people are kind of just taking shit and suffering in silence. And it's not until something different comes along or an approach that's different that comes along that you kind of realize that it's different because I knew that probably like a lot of our approach is different because we want it to be, and we want it to be really situated in our values, no matter how fucking hard and uncomfortable that is. And we've talked about that a lot, but I kind of didn't realize that people weren't really doing like the bare minimum of that, (laughs) whether it's other consultants and how they engage with international 
we're based in the UK, how other UK consultants or US based consultants are interacting with consultants in other countries. I didn't quite realize that we weren't all operating with the same kind of generosity of spirit. And similarly, that some of these organizations, we've been having conversations with other consultants and other companies and realizing that we're all having these quite hard times, but we don't feel we can say because we're afraid of not getting work. Whereas I think part of what we're trying to do in this podcast is even if you don't, you don't know the organizations we're talking about, but you know, those organizations, right? Like, you know them. So there is some piece of being able to identify with some of the shit that's going down. I think learning that other people are having a hard time too, and struggling with the same things makes me feel like there's a lesson here about how we can come together and share those experiences and support each other. Because like, yes, we are competitors, but we don't need to be. I think that's a really meaningful lesson. Thank you. And I think there's something there in like the collective action, right? Yes, we're competitors, as you say, but coming together around things that are going wrong means that things will change or have a higher chance of changing. If the common thread is people are having the same experience with the same people, the same negative experience with the same people, then collectively there feels like more of a chance of change if you come together. Yeah. I mean, the fact that like I've come across some consultants and like we've had the same garbage experience with the same organization and the same types of things. And I think that means something. I think it's useful for us from a kind of like therapeutic sense to be able to share and have a a commonality of experience. But then what's the step that's beyond that? Right. Because if I don't believe that that organization is one that can fulfill its obligations to supporting and facilitating growth in a community, neither does another independent consultant. What space is there to snatch that money away and give it to somebody who can? (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) This is why I think we should do undercover boss and work for donors. I really want to do that. And that's such a good idea because it's got that kind of like journalistic, investigative. And, you know, I know a private detective that might be able to help us out. <laughs> I can't say who. You don't want to out them. But imagine if like the Ministry of Foreign Affairs was just like, yeah, go and like, we're going to install you in this project. And then like you go in the project. Maybe that's what the Citibank thing was. No, who, yeah, like, who, who's the mystery shopper there? <laughs> mystery Parker. I don't know. There you go. Very fruitful lessons to speak. And that's it from us today. Yeah. Let us know how you liked these uh, new segments. We're going to keep rolling these out. Yeah. Really keen to hear your feedback. Please do, as ever, send us an email. Any thoughts, uh, reflections on today's episode? No or- dick pics. Lauren's getting sick of opening dick pics. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, this episode now got made explicit. <laughs> you were saying we were shit so earlier. good until so- you were saying shit. Oh, there we go. Um, <laughs> yeah, so jrnypodcast at gmail.com. Send us your emails. We'll read them out next week. And that's it from us. I'm Lauren. I'm Tia. And this has been the Journey to Transformation. It certainly has been. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Journey to Transformation. Leave us a five-star rating and a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Journey to Transformation is written and edited by us, Tia Rogers and Lauren Burrows. Our music comes from Praz Canal.